So we've all now watched all 10 episodes of, uh, what's it called again? (laughs) 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 Sorry, let's try it again. You can't prove it. You got nothing legit. Staircase After Show Special, Episode 6, The Prosecution's Revenge. Hi, I'm Michael Spratt. And I'm Emily Tammon. You're not just Emily Tammon. Oh, I mean, I, I'm i Emily Tammon. What Emily Tammon am I? You're Emily Tammon, one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada, Emily that's, Tammon. That's the one. That's the one. Yes, I was quite... Shocked, odd, surprised to have made the list this year for Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Um, I was nominated, too. You were nominated and also. And I just want to say to the person who wrote in on your like winning page when they did the bio and stuff, they had like comments from people who wrote in and stuff. Someone, a listener of this podcast, said, Emily Tammon should win for the docket alone. I was like... But if that was the only criteria, <laughs> there's two of us. There's two of us, but we contribute in our own unique ways, wouldn't it's, you say? It's true. And and to be fair to you, you know, like it's an honor just to be nominated. It's true. I take great joy that you won, and I take great pride that uh, Peter Sankoff didn't win too. <laughs> Peter has a lot of influence, just not in the top 25, according to Canadian Lawyer Magazine. As I told him on Twitter, next time, I just need to go more negative. (laughs) You're going to start running attack ads next time? Yeah. Peter Sankoff. (laughs) Wants more justice. (laughs) What you don't know. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Really, thank you to everyone that supported me. It's great. No, super fantastic. (laughs) Um, And we've been keeping up with our two-episode-a-week schedule. To be fair, though, I mean, we've just returned from seven days off the grid. I'm not aware of podcast technology that would have allowed us to put together a podcast from the interior of Algonquin Park. Uh, but we are currently recording in a remote outdoor studio in the Laurentians in Quebec. It's very nice. See, we do this when we can. We do. It's very dreamy. So um, should we talk about the staircase? Is there anything we need to do before we start talking about the staircase? Oh, there is. Let me just get right to that. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for members of the criminal bar and judiciary. Anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. For our listeners, Iman's offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca slash CLS and enter code STAIRCASE10 at checkout. Do that. Now. Immediately. Wait, no. Listen to this, then do it. Truth. All right. The prosecution's revenge. I guess so. I mean, I don't, this is one of the episodes where I don't fully get the title and how it ties in, but I will say I was pleased to get to the episode where we finally get to find out what the DA intends to do with the evidence in relation to Liz Ratliff. 
Yeah, so I mean, we get to see them close their case and we get all of the prosecution's case sort of put in in two episodes, really. So two hours out of what has been sort of a 40-day trial up to this point. So there's definitely lots of stuff that we don't see. But we do start here with um, Catherine's sister testifying. Kathleen's sister, yeah. Yeah, her. And and that's where we get maybe one of my favorite lines of the series so far, where uh, Kathleen Peterson's sister is talking about how it was that she came to gift Kathleen with the blowpoke. And she said, uh, in the Christmas of 1984, I, I gave... She basically says she gave lots of people blow pokes because I had just so enjoyed having my blow poke. Like, she just really, really enjoyed it. And I thought, I so enjoyed having my blow poke. That was just a line I did not expect to hear. So do you think giving the same gift to your entire family, is that, does that sort of represent that you really love the thing or just sort of that you're unimaginative and a bad gift giver? I take offense to that personally, having given multiple members of my family the game Codenames for Christmas last year, which is a game that I really enjoyed. And I don't think just arose out of a lack of creativity on my part. But I will say that I think an engaging, challenging board game is something that is more reasonably enjoyed than a blowpoke. Like, how do you a fire blowpoke, yes. How do you come to love a blowpoke? Like, I mean, maybe we should get one. I, I think I might be missing out on... You get to both poke and blow simultaneously. <laughs> That's rude. So um, this is where we get to hear a little bit about um, the relationship between Michael and Kathleen. And I, I just one thing that I thought was interesting here was when Kathleen's sister was confronted with earlier statements she had made to police about police about uh, Michael and Kathleen having had a loving, respectful, trusting relationship. She now says that she, quote, has no idea who Michael Peterson is and that Although, yes, she had previously made that statement, she says, knowing what I know today, um, you know, that changes my view. And I thought that exchange is an interesting opportunity to just talk a little bit about the presumption of innocence, because this is exactly the trap that you can get into. Now, she's just a witness. She can say whatever she wants and she can factor things in how she wants. But essentially, all of these new allegations about Michael Peterson and his past have to be true in order for her new opinion of him to be sustainable. And so this is this kind of presumption of innocence um, conundrum, right? That she is essentially completely prepared to accept his guilt on the basis of her complete acceptance of all of this new stuff that she's heard about him. Yeah, I mean, I think it also shows the prejudicial impact of, you know, sort of this, uh, like, bisexuality and extramarital relationships, um, because all of that was obviously going on when she knew um, Kathleen and Michael. Um, so it wouldn't affect, you know, how she perceived the relationship. But now in retrospect, it sort of does color her view of the relationship. And I mean, it, she's changed her opinion, right? She gave a, a statement to the police shortly after her sister's death that it was a loving, nothing but a loving relationship. And now after hearing this information, um, she says she has no idea who, who Michael Peterson is. And... You can see her try to sort of get out of, you know, adopting that prior statement and trying to explain it away. And she did what a lot of witnesses do that is incredibly unhelpful to them, which is like, for example, when David Rudolph uh, puts the statement to her and says, well, those are your words, you'd agree. And she says, no, they're not my words. I mean, not like I never verbalized them because it's a written statement. Right. So she's kind of nitpicking, not wanting to agree with anything that she's be that's being put to her in cross-examination, which 
we've talked about this before, but I always was very careful to say to witnesses, like, just agree to the things that you agree to. Were those your words? Yes, those were my words at the time. And if you want to qualify in that, that in some way, fine. But to say, oh, those aren't my words. Oh, well, yes, no, I did write them down in a statement, but I never verbalized them. So therefore, they're not my words. That is just so annoying. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not good witness prep to have a witness testify like that. And I mean, when I'm prepping my client to be cross-examined, I let them know that they're going to have to agree with things that, you know, don't make them look good and they shouldn't argue. And it's my job to make sure that things are fair. And the same holds true for prosecution witnesses, too. And we've seen this a lot over the last, you know, number of months, the last year, 18 months with, you know, high profile sex assault cases um, where there have been acquittals because uh, the witnesses, the complainants, um, who have made the allegations um, do this sort of thing where they think an answer might make them look bad and it's not th- that answer that would have lost the case but it's the way that they try to get around uh, providing that sort of uh, that answer or that information on the witness stand like Kathleen or like uh, like Kathleen's sister did here that sort of sort of taint their testimony as a whole. You see it a little bit later in the episode, too, with Deborah Radish, the medical examiner, when I I made some notes about how emotive her face is. And when she gets asked questions in cross-examination, you can see her face, like, connecting the dots and sort of she kind of rolls her eyes and you can see that she's like, oh, I see. Oh, I know where this is going. Okay, But she answers it. She doesn't give. So. um, But let's save that because I've got lots to say about her. Absolutely. Um, So then after. after we see this evidence from um, from Kathleen's sister, um, we get to meet Brad. Or Soldier Top, if you prefer. <laughs> I like Brad. He um, is the um, male escort that Michael Peterson um, is alleged to have communicated with. I mean, I think he admits as much. Brad certainly confirms that they had had uh, an exchange. And I mean, I thought this was an interesting presentation of a witness in that he has no real stake, right? I mean, he, as he says at the very end, he what did he say? He knows diddly about what happened to Kathleen Peterson. But it's hard to know if he if he feels loyal to Peterson or like where he's coming from, but he certainly, I I would say helps mitigate his own evidence a little bit with um, the statements that he makes in relation to Michael Peterson and his relationship with Kathleen and that he never saw any effort on Michael's part to be concealing anything from his wife. And that if anything, he actually noted directly to Brad that he was in a loving marriage. Yeah. I mean, he is a good witness. He comes across as a, as an honest and believable witness. Um, And I've got a couple things to say about his testimony, but I want to back it up a bit before that, because before Brad's called, there's um, a conversation between Rudolph and Peterson uh, about his evidence, right? Because we know that there was these emails that went back and forth and there was never a meeting. And it it was a, a really interesting scene for me where Rudolph is on the phone with uh, Peterson and he's asking him, is there anything else? Did you guys meet? Um, and he's sort of pressing Peterson on it because Peterson says, no, we, we didn't. It was just emails. And Rudolph is like, but if there's anything else you need to tell me, like better to tell me now, sort of pressing his client on whether stuff happened. Because one of the things that, that you know, you come to understand when you represent people People is that even if your client is innocent, um, sometimes they hold back things that they think might not make them look good or might 
might make them think that you would maybe not believe in them or fight as hard for them or make them look guilty. Um, and so this was an interesting scene, something that happens all the time where Rudolph is sort of pressing him to, to you know, if there's any bad stuff out there, if there's anything else out there, tell me now. Yeah, giving him the opportunity to come clean, right? Like- and giving multiple opportunities because quite often, like, you don't discover that, uh, discover sort of a piece of information like that that's been held back until uh, a bit later on. Yeah, and and because these emails on their face really do make it seem as though they did meet up, right? And so Rudolph's giving him every opportunity, and I think he's probably lucky in this case to have a client as sophisticated as Michael Peterson, because Peterson basically says, listen, we never met. I would never lie to you. I understand that it is not in my interest for you to be blindsided with something. Um, That's not going to help me. And I get that that's not going to help me. And you can see Rudolph's face um, sort of smiling and being like, okay, I think I can trust this now because this guy clearly, clearly gets it. And before we actually get into Brad's testimony, we have um, the, the defense discussion and the court proceedings about, you know, the relevance of that evidence. If one were to think about this, if those were women, if Mr. Peterson's only sexual orientation was heterosexual and the state had located two prior girlfriends that he'd had some kind of physical relationship before his marriage, I don't think any court would think there was any relevance. It would be ridiculous to suggest that that somehow reflects upon the state of your marriage to the extent that it would be relevant to whether you would commit a murder years later. Uh, So uh, the only question then is whether adding the layer that this was sex with other men somehow increases the relevance to the point that this court should allow a jury to hear that uh, testimony. And I think it's clear that adding the layer of sexual orientation decreases its admissibility as opposed to increasing it. Because if even only one juror starts looking at Mr. Peterson differently, not because they think there's a connection to what happened to Kathleen, but they look at him and say, oh my god, this guy's gay. If even one juror does that, Mr. Peterson's been denied a fair trial. I mean, it's the defense position that it's completely irrelevant that, you know, people that uh, he had sex with, that Peterson had sex with or relationships with before he was in this marriage is completely irrelevant. And, you know, even sex for money um, during uh, during the relationship um doesn't provide any motive or doesn't show that it's sort of a dysfunctional or bad relationship. Um, What did you think about sort of the defense characterization of the admissibility of of Brad's evidence? Well, first of all, there was a great exchange between David Rudolph and Tom Maher where they're kind of, you know, just debating back and forth. And Tom is taking the kind of devil's advocate prosecution. You know, this is what I think the prosecution is going to do. And, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to say that it's completely irrelevant um, in the context of an alleged murder of a spouse that the accused was having extramarital relationships. I mean, I think there's relevance there on some level. Um, I thought it was interesting when Rudolph said, you know, on the bisexuality thing, like, I think we can deal with that. I don't think it's the end of the world. Uh, What I do think is really a big problem for us is the emails themselves and the nature of the emails and how explicit they are and that... That is going to really, I think what he said was those emails are going to turn people off, Mike, like that the the jury um, is going to be prejudiced against Michael Peterson, not exclusively because of the fact that, you know, he wasn't a straight guy, but because of just the the kind of the raunchiness and stuff of the emails. Um, But I think uh, Tom makes 
the really, really good point that you just alluded to about, let's say we took all of the, you know, homosexuality, bisexuality out of the equation. There's, there's Brad, the, the escort, but the, the DA also wants to bring evidence of other relationships that Michael Peterson had with men before he was married to Kathleen. And I think it's there that the point is made so compellingly um, by Marr, both with Rudolph and then ultimately we see it in front of the court um, sort of saying, just try to fathom a situation where you have an accused person who's married and you want to bring evidence of relationships that he's had with other women before he was married. Like that to him makes it very clear that the DA is wanting to prejudice the jury exclusively on the basis of Peterson's sexual orientation as opposed to the infidelity itself. So like where I would say, I think I wouldn't, I think it'd be really hard to make the case that the infidelity was completely irrelevant. I think it's relevant. Um, but the way the prosecution wants to use it and the way, for example, they want to put the emails in, right? You could have Peterson admit to the infidelity um, and you wouldn't need all of that color, which is, you know, damaging. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that even leaving aside sort of the prejudicial and completely irrelevant um, sort of sexual contact that he had with other people, um, just looking at sort of the... Uh, the infidelity if it was that during during the marriage i mean i've got a problem with the crown sort of speculative theory that this was the motive to commit murder that you know maybe she found out that night on his computer and that's what drove him to do it because there's no evidence of that whatsoever it's that's completely right. speculative but i think one thing that's really clear is that the defense opened the door to to this sort of evidence if the defense is saying that this is a completely happy, completely loving relationship. Um, I think that I agree with Mahar that that a judge would find that, you know, a jury could use this this evidence to some extent, you know, and, you know, to whatever weight they give it um, to show that maybe it wasn't such a, a loving and happy and, you know, wholesome relationship. So, I mean, I think that by sort of putting his character into issue and putting the nature of the relationship into issue, I think as a judge, you probably, allow, I would allow, you know, some limited evidence like this in. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I, I think, again, Maher did a really excellent job in front of the judge of saying, listen, the question of whether this is relevant is is answered by, you know, does this evidence help us to understand whether it's more or less likely that he committed this murder, right? And the fact that he had relationships before he was married doesn't advance that in any way. But I agree with you completely. The DA comes back and says, yeah, but in your opening, you went on and on about what a loving marriage it is. That's not to say that it's necessarily at odds with a happy marriage that this happened, but I I think you'd be hard-pressed to, to make the case that it's it's not relevant at all. You might, however, want to try to get that evidence um, constrained a little bit. So, for example, I don't know that it would necessarily be necessary for the jury to see all the emails, for example, in order to, you know, effectively uh, paint an alternative picture of the relationship other than just as a happy, loving marriage. That's right. And obviously, um, the judge, Orlando Hudson, gave uh, these arguments a lot of thought um, <laughs> for, for I timed it, for one second yeah. before he rendered his decision. You know, and he, he puts it to the DA, well, what about the fact that they never met? Like, isn't that, doesn't that undercut your argument that it's relevant? And the DA says, it doesn't matter. It can still be motive. And he says, I agree with the DA that this is relevant evidence of motive. And then so there, it's in. Shocker. And then so we get to see Frida Black um, examine uh, Brad. 
uh, on the witness stand. Uh, as I said, Brad's a, a good witness. He's compelling. Like he makes like when he's being cross-examined by Rudolph at one point, he sort of, um, or maybe it was when he was being examined by Frida Black about the types of clients that he had. And he said there were lawyers and judges and, and like professionals. And so, you know, everyone's laughing. And it's always a good thing in a murder trial if people in the courtroom are sort of laughing at, at evidence. Uh, I think that always is a good sign for the defense. And I mean, here you have a bunch of emails between Peterson and Brad um, that, you know, discuss sex, discuss, as, you know, Frida Black says in her closing, anal sex. Anal sex. Well, because he says, she she asks him, well, what was your plan? If you were going to meet up, what were you going to do? And he says, have sex. And she says, what kind of sex? Like, to me, that's another example of how she's really trying to poison the jury pool against him on the basis of, you know, homophobic stereotypes, because she wants him to say, and he does. He looks at the judge and says, can I say it? Anal sex. And the thing with Black is, like, she's such a prude. Throughout the entire thing, she's, like, covering her mouth and giggling and shocked. And uh, just watching her body language, I thought, said a lot about um, where she was coming from and kind of how she's hoping that the jury will take the evidence. And earlier in the episode, we saw Rudolph and Brad have a brief telephone conversation. And I would love to know sort of what other conversations that he had with Brad or if he ever met with him, which is completely fine when you're a defense lawyer to if a witness wants to talk to you, you can meet with a witness, you can talk to a witness, you can discuss their evidence, you can ask them questions, you don't have to disclose any of that to the Crown, because it seems to me that probably something like that happened because uh, Rudolph's cross-examination of Brad was either the luckiest thing ever or he sort of had a sense about where this witness fell on the spectrum of being friendly or unfriendly. It was a very, very effective cross-examination because he manages to close it up in a way that is very helpful to Michael Peterson. Yeah, so Brad says, like, it's not unusual for married men to contact him. In fact, most most uh, of his clients are married. Most of them are professionals and lawyers and judges. And most um, of the men um, do have, like, long-standing relationships. Um, most have wives. Um, and it's not unusual for the wife to know. And... He actually indicated that specifically Peterson um, said that he was in a good relationship with his wife and, you know, never said anything bad or untoward about her. So, I mean, that's all very good evidence. And I think it, it you know, doesn't help the prosecution at all in, in showing that this is something that, you know, um, Kathleen didn't know about or, or could have been the motive for a murder. I think it would be <clears throat> better for the defense if there was more direct evidence of Kathleen knowing, you know, I mean, it, I don't know how credible the jury will find Brad's assertion in that regard. Brad, he doesn't really know the Petersons, um, but it's great that he's actually able to read directly from an email. Like they have, they do have concrete evidence of Peterson telling this guy that he is in a loving marriage. This isn't just exclusively based on Brad's recollection. So I do think that is helpful. From there, we move on to the similar fact evidence that we've talked about before. Um, about the Ratliff death. That's right. So this is now the 
essentially the case that the DA refused to make in advance of the trial. We talked about that, and we talked about that with David Rudolph, right? That uh, it seems to all of us that it would have been a lot more fair for this to have taken place before the trial started. Here we are, it would seem, pretty much at the end of the prosecution's like case. 40. Now they're bringing their application to, to call this evidence. Um, and so now we're hearing from some of the witnesses who were present at the time of Rat- Ratliff's um, death, or that's what the that's the, what the DA wants to get in. Yeah, because uh, before that, we hear the arguments, and I mean, Mahar lays it out that you know there was nothing suspicious about this death. It wasn't deemed to be a homicide. There was no motive. There was no financial gain, and ultimately, there's you know no substantial evidence that a jury could reasonably find that Peterson was responsible. Yeah, and so. The, the case that Maher is trying to make is that if you can't reasonably conclude that Michael Peterson was responsible for Liz Ratliff's death, then it's not relevant to the prosecution at hand. Um, when we were watching this, you and I had a slightly different reaction to the prosecution's argument here. I thought it was actually quite creative that the DA um, submitted to the judge, essentially, even if we were prepared to concede that Michael Peterson did not kill Liz Ratliff, which they're not doing, but he's saying even if he didn't do it, the prosecution says this evidence would nonetheless still be relevant because it's evidence that Michael Peterson has experience with someone who's dead at the bottom of the stairs in the sense that, um, you know, for example, if he wanted to stage it as an accident, he might know what it looks like as an accident. Now, this is don't get me wrong. It's thin, but I thought it was actually quite clever because it it allows the judge to contemplate putting the evidence in regardless of whether Peterson did it or not, um, and kind of to, to squeeze it in to fit a mold that this isn't about prior discreditable conduct necessarily. This is just about past experiences that Peterson has had, which might be relevant to his ability to you know pull off a, a murder like this. Yeah, you're right. The prosecution argued that. Um, <laughs> we don't really know why the judge let it in. Um, he did reflect on this decision three times longer than he did on the prior decision. It took him three seconds to, to make a decision. Um, but, I, I mean, the... Number one, the argument that this is, you know, relevant to some sort of similar act evidence. Um, we've talked about that in the past. You need to prove that that the death was a murder. You need to prove that Peterson was responsible for the murder. And then you need to show that, at least in Canada, you need to show that the probative value of that is, is not outweighed by the prejudicial uh, impact. And I think you fail at every single step along the way there. And then, I mean, the prosecution did make the argument that he has experience with people at the bottom of the stairs, and so he could have staged it or, you know, seen how it happened once. And so, I mean, I think that evidence is so speculative and so thin that um, I would be embarrassed to make that argument as a prosecutor. One of the things in a courtroom, at least in courtrooms other than the courtroom where this trial took place, is that whether you're defense counsel or crown counsel, um, your credibility is all you have. And as soon as you lose the credibility in front of the jury or in front of the judge making a ridiculous argument, that you know not only can hurt you in that argument, but that can have ripple effects to other arguments and other objections and other applications that you may make. And so I'd be very careful about bringing an argument so thin as this, um, because if you get laughed out of court once by a judge on a thin argument, it's a lot easier for, for that judge to laugh you out of court again. Well, first of all, 
Orlando Hudson's not laughing the DA out of court. That's why I said any courtroom other than this courtroom. Yeah. But I I agree with everything you just said, except I disagree that this argument would fall into that category of arguments that is so laughably thin. I actually think the similar fact application is thinner than that. Um, And I think it was clever of the prosecution to find a way to make a case outside similar fact, yet at the same time, the overwhelming thrust of the DA's argument clearly is that this is relevant, similar fact evidence. Um, you know, he says, you know, they they were both determined to be homicides. By the same... Eventually, yeah. right later. Um, he tries to make the case that a striking similarity is that both Liz Ratcliffe and um, Kathleen Peterson had the same number of lacerations on their head, which is pretty... He says that would be a big coincidence. They both look the same. Even if Peterson did kill both these women, I think it probably is a coincidence (laughs) if the number of lacerations is the same. Um, And Michael Peterson was the last one to see both of them alive. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's pretty clear that the the main thrust of the DA's argument is the idea that he killed once and he killed again. And then so we hear evidence from from some nannies and some family friends uh, as it relates to this, like decades old death yeah some pretty uh flaky people on the stand um there's the woman i forget her name but the one with the blonde curly hair who in some ways reminds me of kathleen peterson's sister uh in the way she's kind of trying to well first of all i couldn't even understand half of what she was saying she made these analogies about you know why she didn't make a report to the police initially um that didn't really make sense to me uh She's basically trying to make the case that she was suspicious that this was a murder from the very beginning, but she never shared that suspicion with anyone uh, other than her husband. Um, and she said, "This is a crime scene." Yes, I. There's a bloody footprint. This is a crime scene. We should be treating it like a crime scene. And I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit because we heard from some other people about how bloody it was and all this other. I mean, stuff that's that, basically all it was, yeah. right? They, there's the evidence about how bloody it was, which is similar to you know the evidence uh, in the Peterson death, right? About how bloody it was, and I mean that can be sort of a risky play for the prosecution as well because if you if the jury believes that that the Ratliff death was an accident, it just shows that accidents can lead to lots of blood. Um, and so I'm, I, we don't see the defense using that in their closing submissions or later on in the trial, but I'm sure that that's something that, that they, they would have brought up. Yeah, that's right. But I, what I really, really enjoyed was the cross-examination of that uh, curly-haired witness um, who um, is cross-examined on the fact that a lot of the details she's giving at the trial uh, have never been disclosed before, not you know, back in the 80s when this happened, not when she first gave a statement to police in the course of this kind of renewed investigation in the course of the Peterson case. Um, and she, <laughs> so he's sort of pushing her on, well, you never told the police this, you never told the police that, you never told the police this. And then she just kind of off the cuff at one point says, that's right. And that was one of the things that came back to me in one of my flashbacks. And he, his, his head did like a double take and he goes, I'm sorry, you've been having flashbacks? You actually wrote out a statement to uh, Detective Holland? Uh, yes. Okay, and this statement contained all the significant memories you had about how Elizabeth Ratliff died and Michael Peterson's involvement in that, correct? It contained every significant thing that I could remember at that time until I began to remember more things. Okay, well, let's go through what you could remember when you wrote to Detective Holland. Nowhere in this statement did you say that Michael Peterson said anything about there being a cerebral hemorrhage before the German police arrived, did you? 
In fact, although you knew this statement was about Michael Peterson, an investigation of Michael Peterson, you didn't say anything about him at all, did you? No. Didn't even mention his name? No, I didn't. Didn't mention this bloody footprint that you now recall? No. You talk about the fact that Ms. O'Hara, uh, and that's Ms. Malignino, summoned you. Uh, she was frantic at that point? She was upset, come quick. By the way, the girls, it says here the two girls were still in bed? Yes. That's uh, Margaret and Martha? They didn't stay there the whole time. No, Barbara had removed them. I didn't remember that until later when I saw the footprint. When I remembered seeing the bloody footprint on the stairs, then I remembered that she had gone upstairs and taken them away. That so, was one of my flashbacks. So flashbacks, have you been having flashbacks? And it's like, it's a gift. You can just see that he's like, yes. This is, I mean, it. it's charitable to describe it as a gift. It is like, <laughs> it is like Christmas. It's like Chrismica. Oh, <laughs> we've been watching the OC. Um, it is the best gift you could ever have. And I mean, it's something that happens to every defense lawyer. Um, because, I mean, he's right when Mara's cross-examining her that she didn't disclose any of these things, like her suspicions, the thoughts that it was a crime, um, the fact that um, that Peterson, when when he saw the body, he said that, oh, it must have been an aneurysm, coming up with his explanation on the spot. Um, you know, there was nothing about the bloody footprint, um, and there was nothing about Peterson at all in her previous statement, and none of that was disclosed in, in the 18 years or whatever that had passed since. Um, and at one point he says, you know, don't they have telephones in, in Germany? Cause, I love that. I wrote that he said, they have phones in Germany, don't they? Because she sort of said, well, then they moved away, and so there was not really anything I could do. Which they is have phones a, in Germany, don't they? A great they? example of, like, how when you're in the appropriate time and you've done the appropriate work that, you know, a bit of sarcasm can be good in cross-examination. But then, you know, explaining away these these details because you need to explain. If you thought it was a murder, if you thought Peterson was involved, if you thought and had suspicions and you didn't do anything for 18 years, but you do do it, you know, after there's a second accusation and after you've talked to other witnesses and after you've been provided with other information, there needs to be an explanation for that. And, you know, sometimes it can be, you know, I was threatened by the accused or, you know, I did tell somebody, but it just wasn't recorded. Um, her explanation is flashbacks. Yeah, it's all which of them is, coming. When I when that happens to me in a trial, my face is the same as Mahar. You say, "Oh, let's talk more about these flashbacks that you have." I remember one time uh, a lawyer in my firm had someone explain it away, saying that memories have come back in dreams and nightmares. It's like, "Oh, let's talk about these dreams and nightmares you've had," because I mean, it's common sense and common knowledge that, um, and this is a line that I use on juries sometimes that, um, unlike a fine wine, memory doesn't get better with age. I yeah. mean, you remember things better at the time. And as the years go on, even if you come to believe something or come to remember something, um, that memory is so infallible because of all the external pressures and external sort of um, factors that can go into creating that memory and, and forming that memory. And so the fact that these come back as flashbacks and the fact that she's had contact with other witnesses, um, I think, and the fact that, you know, she never recorded any of these observations before um, and the fact that you would you know record or document these observations before I think makes her evidence pretty useless yeah I mean she kind of gives us twofold like on the one hand it's flashbacks on the other hand um, the suspicions that she had or the concerns that she had were never communicated to police essentially she says because well we just figured they know what they're doing 
which and that was the weird analogy that she gave from her husband is that like you know you leave it to the people who are the experts just because I'm a major in the military doesn't mean that I should be interfering with an investigation but if you're a witness and you have relevant information to provide that would help the so-called experts do their job you would think that you would do that so uh, yeah, she was a, a really flaky witness, and I think they did some good work on her. The other thing that Mahar does here is, and you can see that he is going to be cross-examining her on inconsistencies in in her prior written statement and in her, in her courtroom testimony, because he does a good job of setting up that prior written statement. And this is something that is like standard every time you have an inconsistency. Um, you don't want to give the person, before you confront them with the inconsistency, any outs. Um, so you want to make sure that, you know, they wrote the statement themselves, that they had lots of time to write the statement, that no one was telling them what to write, that they weren't feeling any pressure or threats at the time they wrote the statement, that they would have communicated everything that they knew, that they wanted to try to help the police. And, you know, and they gave all the relevant information they had to the police. And that's how you set it up. And it can take, you know, minutes or half an hour to sort of set that up before you actually start talking about the inconsistencies. Yeah, so that was that was a fun cross-examination to watch, but at the same time, it was almost too easy, right? <laughs> it was just, it was kind of handed on a silver platter. And just before we move on, so before this, they, they play a TV clip of Nancy Grace. Good old Nancy Grace. You know, Rosemary, I've said many, many times, there is no coincidence in criminal law. And uh, I'm just wondering how Todd and the other two Ratliff girls don't see these similarities. Maybe they don't want to see the similarities, Rosemary. Criminalize nothing but coincidences. <laughs> like everything from the presumption of innocence to similar fact arguments, it's all about coincidences. Because, I mean, quite often some people say he must have been the unluckiest person if he was innocent, but his hair was found at the scene and, you know, his car was in, in you know, the vicinity at the time the murder was committed. But that's what happens all the time. And our criminal law is structured to make sure that coincidences don't lead to life sentences. That's right. Or at least that um, there's an actual burden of proof on the prosecution to establish that something isn't a coincidence, right? Like that the, spac- the facts speak for themselves. And if you want to ask the trier of fact to draw some kind of an inference from those facts, it has to be based in the evidence and not speculation. And so the, the notion that there's no such thing as a coincidence is essentially a complete reversal of the presumption of innocence. It's sort of, well, we're going to assume it's not a coincidence unless you can prove otherwise, which is, of course, not how it works. And this is all in the context of Nancy Grace, um, you know, talking about how she just cannot understand how Michael Peterson, well, in particular, how Martha and um, Margaret are supporting Peterson, given, as Nancy Grace is essentially concluding, uh, their father killed both of their mothers. Yeah. I mean, there's if there's coincidence in your day-to-day life, why wouldn't there be coincidences in criminal allegations? Exactly. Um, so the episode kind of uh, rounds out with another uh, stellar performance by uh, medical examiner Deborah Radish, uh, this time testifying as to um, her opinion in relation to the death of Liz Ratliff um, and, you know, indicating that she had concluded that Ratliff had died by homicide. You then have sort of a, a cut scene to an interview that, Ra- that um, David Rudolph is giving to the filmmakers where, again, I mean, you just see how incisive his thinking is on these things, right? Like, he says they 
essentially the DA's theory is that Michael Peterson killed her the night before and then went home to his family. And then she was discovered in the morning by the nanny when she came in. Uh, he makes the actually pretty obvious point. He says, you know, no one has considered, it's not in the report, it's not anywhere, no one has considered what the evidence is in relation to the time of death. And he says, if she had died the night before, you would expect the body to be in a very different condition, whatever, 10 hours later, um, than if she had died an hour before or whatever. Um, and this is what I was talking about before when, when I said, you know, when he sort of puts that to the medical examiner and he starts asking her questions about rigor, as he puts it, rigor mortis and, you know, the timing and how it would set in and you can just see her eyes. It's like she actually hadn't considered that at all. Yeah. I mean, this is a witness who has one of the most sour looks on her face um, and, you know, it's always we've always cautioned to not give too much weight to sort of demeanor evidence. But when you have a partisan witness who looks like this and while they're having to make reasonable concessions, I think it is uh, fair game to use that sort of demeanor to say that, you know, perhaps the rest of their evidence is colored a little bit if they're so unwilling and so uncomfortable and so sour and making these reasonable concessions that ultimately they have to make. Well, and you can see by her face that she realizes that she's really screwed up because as she's agreeing and she kind of has to um, with everything that Rudolph is putting to her about the condition that you would expect the body to be in. And then he says... Um, did anyone ever, like, he, he says something like, you know, to your knowledge, was there any evidence of, of, of rigor mortis at the, at the scene? And she says, I don't know if anyone ever made those observations. That alone, the fact that she doesn't know that means she hasn't asked herself that question or she hasn't looked for that evidence. Um, the only thing I would say, to be fair, is that if things were proceeding as they should, and I don't think that's the case here, but she shouldn't theoretically really know what the crown theory or the DA's theory is in relation to the time of death, right? So she 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 wouldn't necessarily be um, be aware of the fact that their theory is that she was killed twelve hours before, right? So she would that wouldn't necessarily be something that would be in her report. Um, the The report should speak for itself, and she doesn't indicate that there was any evidence of rigor mortis. Um, but still, that like to me that was a really, really big win for David Rudolph and, a, a, you know, an indicator that he's really thinking about these things uh, clearly and that he has a lot of experience. I mean, the only question I have is how the hell is this coming out before the jury at the end of the Crown's case? Like, this should have been dealt with before. Isn't that a fact that the judge should have known before he determined whether this evidence was admissible or not? Well, that's the thing. Like, that... that that's actually huge because to me, by the time Rudolph is done with Ratliff, I mean, done with Radish, um, it's clear that this evidence just isn't relevant, that you just, you, at least on the, on the relevancy basis that, you know, Peterson killed once he killed again, because he has completely shut down any kind of theory that Ratliff was killed the night before. And the idea that in fact, she maybe died at six in the morning would be much more consistent with an aneurysm and an accidental fall. Yeah, and considering that there was evidence of her headaches and that she was going to go see a specialist and stuff. And that Michael Peterson was at home when she died. <laughs> like, like, that he has an alibi for the time when it seems much more likely that she actually died. But criminal trials should be about avoiding prejudice, not trying to, you know, put the toothpaste back in the, in the, in the tube after prejudice occurs. And I doubt this judge did. But 
as a judge, you can instruct a jury to disregard a piece of evidence or give it no weight um, and, you know, comment on on the usefulness of evidence. So they could be instructed to disregard this evidence that it has no weight, that it should have no part in their decision making. I doubt that this judge did that. But even if a judge does do it, it's better not to have that prejudice introduced at all when it serves no purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, with the end of Radish's uh, evidence, that's basically the close of the prosecution's case. Harden gets up, says the prosecution rests. Orlando then turns to Rudolph and says, is the defense calling any evidence? And he says, I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> you always take the night. Even if you know you're calling evidence, you always take the night. Yeah. And so that's what Rudolph's going to do. And so presumably in the next episode, we're going to get to see that um, decision making process as to in particular whether to call Michael Peterson as a witness. Interesting. Stay tuned. Um, all right. So I think we're halfway through. Yeah, we're getting there. We're plugging away. And I know there's other things happening in the law and politics world that are not being talked about by us right now. Uh, maybe we'll try to squeeze in a mini episode one day just to catch up on a few things. I'm but... considering maybe finishing off the sort of the original run and then we can maybe do one episode encompassing sort of the new Netflix episodes, the three new episodes that were added on, um, because I think there's, they stretched out a bunch of material to cover those last three episodes. Yeah. So I think maybe we can maybe finish out what we're doing and then do sort of like a wrap up bonus yeah, Netflix the episode. After the facts. I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. Because there's so much to talk about in Canadian uh, law and politics. There really is. And uh, given that we're recording outside in our outdoor studio, we can maybe hear in the background some people paddling by, making some noises. And now our dog is starting to bark at said people. So this would probably be an appropriate time to wrap it up. Let's call it. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. Stay night.